0: Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the Football Media Podcast on the team of John O'Shea's platform. I'm John McKenzie and across the course of the new season, I'm going to be bringing you a weekly podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media. Each episode will bring you an interview with an expert in as many diverse areas within the industry as possible. We've got writers, authors, artists, journalists, broadcasters, event coordinators, lawyers, commentators. If you can name it, we've got it. This week I'm speaking to Alex Stewart, Head of Strategy at Tifo Football. In the course of our conversation, we discussed the way that Alex helped to situate Tifo Football at the cutting edge of the football media, how Tifo used video content within that media, and what the future of the football media will look like for them. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends. Subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure. And if you're a social media person, follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. Next week, we'll be talking to Mark Godfrey, founder and editor of the Football Pink, about the place of fanzines in the football media. But before that, it's Alex Stewart, Tifo Football, and the place of video content in the football media. Enjoy. I'm joined today by Alex Stewart, Head of Strategy at Tifo Football, Alex Hayding.
1: I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm doing really good. So at the beginning of all of these episodes, I like to give my guests the chance to introduce themselves and give some something of a location of themselves within the football media. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are. So I, I started life,
1: professional life, uh, as a research academic, not unlike yourself. And About two-thirds of the way through a a PhD, I I actually dropped out and joined the public sector and worked for six years in the Met as a policeman, which is a slightly bizarre segue into things. But I left there in 2014, having become thoroughly disabused of the notion that actually the Met was a well-run organization (laughs) with, with a sensible strategy. And Prior to leaving, I'd been writing a couple of blogs. I did student journalism when I was at university and I'd always enjoyed writing. I was an English student. And so I had a blog about coffee, which was actually uh, something I started to give me a reason to travel around bits of London that I didn't know because I grew up in Hampshire and then lived in Oxford for seven years And I also wrote about football and the the blog I wrote about football on was called Put Niels in Goal after Niels Bohr, the uh, physicist and goalkeeper. And I found that there was, I suppose, a certain interest in in niche historical writing, partly following on, I think, from, from what the Blizzard was doing. And I also did some football manager writing on there because it was a game that I played and enjoyed and I took a particular approach to it. And these things seem to go quite well. So when I when I left the police, I rather naively assumed that I could just move straight into freelance writing and everything would be fine. <laughs> um, and of course, as we know, and as I'm sure people listening to this podcast know, freelance writing is a horrifically cutthroat industry. It's very difficult to get into. It's Even harder once your foot is through the door in some instances to establish yourself. There are a lot of questions around, you know, pricing, pitching, all of these soft skills, I suppose, that are in some ways actually more important than the hard skill of being able to write good copy. So I kind of bumbled around a bit, found it quite difficult at times. The support and encouragement of certain people was hugely useful. So Mark Godfrey at the Football Pink, Ian McIntosh particularly, who is now with Muddy Knees doing Totally Football stuff. They were a couple of, you know, like really early supporters of what I was doing. And I suppose, yeah, I just, I plugged away at it really. And Tifo... Back in its UMAX at days, was somebody that I wrote content for and did some community management for. So I'd always had a relationship with that company purely as a writer. And then, I suppose on the basis of the fact that I'm um, friends with Joe Devine, who's our creative director and the guy who developed and started making the the Whiteboard Football series, I was kind of always closer to what was happening and the mechanics of the company than probably a lot of the other writers. And as I started to do more and to do more video work and more tactical writing for them, eventually I kind of segued into this strategic position that I have within the company now. So as well as still writing tactical content for them, which I love doing, I I kind of oversee how the company is moving from a business perspective, working very closely with Joe, uh, in creative terms, and also with Neil, our founder, and kind of overarching strategy.
0: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Tifo itself. As you've already mentioned that it, it was originally UMAX it, which I always think sounds a little bit like a shampoo or something. But <laughs> that, that was the early days, and it's moved on a lot from those times. One of the things that strikes me, I think, about about Tifo is is, is just how... Evolutionary it is. It does. It seems to change. It seems to situate itself generally towards the cutting edge of, of the football media. So, and that's something we'll go on to talk about. But could you give us a, a little sense of the history, where Tifo came from, what it was like when you arrived there, and your role within the company more specifically?
1: Yeah. So Tifo, as I said, sort of started as Umax. It. There was actually an earlier instantiation of the company which developed a free to play prediction app for the premier league so there were 5 games that were picked out and it was a win lose or draw thing with a cash prize and it was one of those really interesting ideas that clearly had some sort of commercial value at some point but the content arm was grown really to kind of encourage people to come and visit the site and and look at this now this this was all well before I was involved in any capacity other than as a writer but what was really interesting was that it, it quickly became apparent that the the interest in what was being written kind of outstripped the app itself. That grew, and the style of writing I think started to change slowly away from a, a kind of more industry standard news cycle responsive style of of publication to something that was a bit more considered. At some point in, I think, sort of mid-2016, Joe had the idea of of starting videos. And he was playing around with ways of taking interesting questions about football and answering them in a kind of clear, informative video form. And it was really just, I mean, it was his idea. You know, he just kind of went ahead and, and Neil, our founder, gave him the latitude to do that and it grew I suppose not slowly but you know there was a kind of it was not a massive focus it wasn't like a huge amount of weight was thrown behind it at that point in time. In November 2016 I was by that point I was writing scripts for tactical videos and the big tactical innovation well not even really an innovation but kind of a revisiting of of an idea was when Antonio Conte brought in three at the back at Chelsea in the aftermath of that arsenal defeat, so we did a video that just explained in very simple terms here is a thing that you know you are seeing talked about a lot how does it actually work uh, and I think throughout really the the kind of primary focus of the video content has always been take an idea that people are asking questions about or may find interesting even if they're unaware of it and set out to answer that question or explain that idea. And at that point, really that video went reasonably viral. And that was the point at which we kind of thought this is something that we, I suppose, should commit to more thoroughly and in a more considered fashion. It's one of those instances, I think of of somebody within a company just having a really great concept and, and being given the freedom to start working through it to the point of delivery and I think that's something that's really informed what we've always tried to do. I, I say always tried to do. I mean, I've been there since January. But Tifo's idea really, first and foremost, is to to try to do something interesting within the football space that we feel people will want to look at or want to read or want to listen to. That That is kind of the essence of the business strategy, really. It's make stuff that's good And then people will watch it. And kind of everything else really flows from that. Of course, content is expensive to create. So there is a business imperative there as well. And it's really my job, working closely with Joe and obviously with Neil, to work out the best ways for us to maximize our revenue, to ensure that we are in a position to continue creating stuff that people want to watch because if we didn't have income, we wouldn't be able to do that.
0: That's a really good overview of, of how the company functions. One thing that I would like to talk about is the way that Tifo functions, I guess, mechanically, which is as far as I've been able to make out as a shot window for a media company. And what I like about this is that having written both scripts for you and also written content as well for Seb, one of the things I really like is the, the emphasis or the emphasis away from hunting for clicks. So there's not necessarily a a worry that what you should produce should necessarily have an immediate correlation to virality in that sense. If there's a belief that if you write good content, then eventually it will, it will become popular rather than thinking it doesn't matter if the content is or isn't good. We just want it to be popular. So obviously that means that you're not operating in the, in the terms of an ad revenue model in that sense, which I think can dilute content. Would you say that operating as a shop window for a media company offers you a more sustainable revenue model than that ad revenue model?
1: I'd like to think so. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting way of putting it because the idea of, of it being a shop window, I think semantically almost implies that to a degree, the, the point of the content there is to be seen by a small number of people who will then engage us to do other work. And I think what's interesting as as we've grown and we've developed we've realized that actually our audience really is the key to everything that we do so partly that's because having a large audience having a committed and engaged audience implies credibility for the product it means that people trust what we write say if you know if it's a tactical piece for example the reason that so many people watch our our tactical videos, and and it's not just me who writes them, we've got excellent people, Tiago Esteval, Blair Newman, lots of good people write for us on that. But if you come to watch one of our videos, you know that by and large it'll it'll be as correct as it possibly can be given how complex tactics are, and also that it'll be explained in such a way that is palatable. It's not super complicated, it's not there to try and sound cleverer than everybody else. So the way that we... Talk to our audience and the way that the audience engages with us is really, really important. And I think what that means is we're never looking to to shout over their heads at the people who've got brand advertising budgets to spend or anything like that. We're looking at them all as being the same group. And some of those people will pay us to make content or pay us to sponsor content. But actually the, the, the biggest and most important group are the people who come to the, the videos day in, weekend, in, whatever, or even ones who just rock up and watch one or two because they're the ones who can lead what we make, how we make it, we can respond to them and we can sort of see what the appetite for things is. So I, I think it's interesting. If you look at interesting companies that are operating within this space at the moment, if it's like a, a Copper 90 or a Mundial something like that you know the again they they are in some ways shop windows for agencies but it's not to diminish the nature of what they are putting out front and center and i think we're we're sort of seeking to do the same thing we we want our videos to be great in and of themselves not simply because there's a possibility that somebody from an agency or whatever will will see them and look at them having said that again i go back to the point that Creating content of this quality does require a budget and it's impossible to produce the volume that we produce at the level that we produce if we don't have a reasonable revenue model to sustain that.
0: At this point, I guess it'd be good to talk about the monetization of, of content because obviously if the majority of your revenue is coming through advertisement or doing work for, for other companies – the impression that I get is that, and it, obviously, a, a lot of the routes through which that sort of revenue arrives, at you is through advertising. You have to do a huge amount of work to translate your online presence into monetary value. And I guess that the, where I would be going with this question is asking whether or not you've considered monetizing your content for the consumer, so getting the consumer to subscribe or some form of payment system going. Because I think obviously the beauty of that sort of system is that you can you you only have to attract a much Smaller group of, of individuals to, to pay, they will pay much better than, than an, uh, than a click will translate to money in an ad revenue content. So if you, I think a few months ago, maybe I saw something on the Tifo social media somewhere that uh, questions asked about maybe having a subscription model. I don't know whether or not you've, you've thought about that anymore.
1: It's certainly something that's, that's under consideration like anything else. And, and I think if you're operating in the, the digital, media landscape, then it's impossible not to look at subscription as a potential model. I think the key thing for us is that were any move of that nature to be made, we would have to consider how our primary audience would respond to that. We'd have to ensure that the production of content justified what we were doing and that we were able to configure any kind of move into that as being something that was Worthwhile for our audience, so i I think in a way if you're if you're looking at say a kind of patreon model, for example, you know the the successful ones of those are the ones who who have a a public facing presence and some free content and and good engagement, but then also select elements that go behind that patreon paywall and that the stuff that's there is considered and thoughtful and worth investing in. I, what I would never want to do is just kind of look at uh, the fact that we've got a community that that is growing in a sustained way and cares about what we do, and jump from that to and therefore they're going to want to help us out by giving us some money so we can keep doing it. I think there has to be real value for the consumer in that. Now I I subscribe to the Atlantic. Not the Atlantic, the Athletic. I don't subscribe to the Atlantic. <laughs> and the Athletic is is interesting because, you know, obviously there's been some kind of debate around not the model that they're using so much as the, the means of of staffing and so on. But I personally find that it's, you know, the cost is not something that I especially have an issue with or notice going out. And it provides me with... Because I've subscribed to it, I make a specific effort to ensure that I am actually reading through it as often as possible. I know there are some really good writers there. There's some interesting guys writing about the Premier League, for example. But for me, it's also exposure to particularly North American sports where I'm thinking, you know, I'm shelling out however much a month for this. So actually, yeah, I'm going to go and check out that article on baseball or, or NBA or what's happening in Liga MX. Not Not because I'm necessarily massively interested in that, but because I'm paying for something and I want to ensure that I'm getting good value for that. So if we go down a subscription route at any point, that's going to be the informing principle is if somebody is paying for this content, what is the additional value that they're getting out of that over and above what they can consume for free?
0: And I guess your target audience is very much inquisitive individuals who want to find out about things and I guess... People who want to find out about things aren't going to want to have to sign up to get content. So I suppose that the the actual business model that you're adopting now would have to think through a smart way of subscription in order to do that. I suppose.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, it's it's very difficult to. I I, I would be the first person to say that it's impossible to look at consumers and, and homogenise them in any way. I mean, we get you know we get analytics through from the usual stuff from YouTube and from the website and it'll tell us that, you know, a certain percentage of our audience are X or Y or what have you. But I think if if anybody is out there saying that they've unlocked, you know, the understanding of of what the new football media fan is like or anything, then they're they're, you know, they're talking through their hat. And I think what what we would prefer always to do is to continue to make content that we think is really interesting. Not because we've gone, okay, we're talking to 18 to 25-year-olds predominantly from this area and predominantly from this background, therefore this is what they'll want. We're going, you know, actually, the Sladu's tearing it up in Brazil. Do we have many Brazilian viewers? Not many, but he's an interesting player. He's someone worth looking at. Let's put that video out. Um, that's really our guiding principle, and I think you know. However we, however we monetize content, whether it's through advertising, through sponsorship, through any kind of putative subscription model, that has to always be our guiding principle. What are people going to find interesting that they won't find elsewhere?
0: Yeah, that's very good, and I think very novel in football media right now, from what I've seen. So you've made it clear that you're putting the audience first. And you've, We've talked a little bit about responsibility. I had, I'd had i put a question in the running order about this, but I think you've answered much of it. My question would be, do you think that the, uh, any notion of responsibility that you have for the audience would feel different if they were a direct source of income? You've already mentioned that if you were to monetize in, in a subscription model, however, it was mechanized, that you would have to feel as though they were getting value for that. So how do you think that notion of responsibility would change? Would it simply be that you then felt a, a responsibility to respond to them differently to the way that you're doing now in terms of, I guess, creative influences? Because it's very clear from Tifo that they are right at the uh, the forefront of, of getting their audience to suggest what what it is that they want to to view. So uh, do you think that would change in any way if you were to have them subscribers, as, as it were?
1: I think, if anything, it would, in in some ways, and I'm not saying that this is a justification for that model, but I think it would actually deepen that connection because our audience, like you've said, insofar as I'm going to generalise about an audience at all, but we have a lot of people clearly that watch our channel who are really interested in football as a totality. Yes, yes, we'll have Liverpool fans that just come for the Naby Keita videos or whatever, but that's there's nothing against that, but... A, a segment of our audience, quite a strong segment of our audience is there week in week out checking out aspects of what we do. And because they're informed and because they're engaged and interested, a lot of their suggestions are really really good. So I sit there as as somebody who not just doing the job I do from a strategic perspective, but actually having the pleasure of of writing quite a lot of this stuff. I'll I'll sit there and wade through things and think, oh, I haven't heard of that. That's, oh, that's a great idea. Or I must look this guy out because I've never come across him before. And that allows us, yes, the, there's obviously an inherent benefit in the fact that we are engaging back with our audience and that there's a responsiveness and that I think that builds a certain loyalty in, in the audience and it, it engenders positive feeling. But actually, I'll be very blunt, it's really useful for us because you know there's many many heads are better than one and i would be again the first person to to deny that i know every single thing there is to know about football that would be a ridiculous statement (laughs) um i think there are plenty of people who peddle that myth about themselves out there and and i'm not one of them so (laughs) if people who are watching our content in argentina or brazil or china or wherever are able to recommend topics of interest be they historical tactical what have you that's always something that we're going to listen to not just because they're suggesting it but because they are actually good ideas in and of themselves
0: yeah finally on the on the topic of responsibility there was a couple of instances that you were involved in on social media different counts this week just raising issues of amongst other things intellectual property and transparency regarding sources How do you navigate these issues at Tifa, especially as a company who have a very clear aesthetic? you're doing something that a lot of other companies aren't really doing and are doing it well so i suppose you will um you're going to have a lot of copycats emerging presumably uh, and also the fact that there, you do have a, an emphasis upon things like the historical or the ta- or tactical analysis which i think means that, that there is scope for referencing to to allow the the consumer to see where it is that the various influences for videos and and written pieces are coming from how how would you navigate those issues
1: I think there's two separate questions there. The first is to do with with referencing and context, and the, the second is to do with, I suppose, if we put it kindly, inspiration <laughs> um, that we may give to others. I think in terms of, of referencing, it, like I'm I'm conscious of the fact that, generally speaking. I don't reference other people's work or borrow from other people's work in my tactical videos. And in the very rare instances where I do, I will make a note of that. So in a piece I did recently on on what Spurs need to do to win the Premier League, which according to our users is quite a lot slash (laughs) will never happen. I read a, a really good piece by Nathan Clark, which referenced the length of the grass At White Hart Lane versus Wembley. Now there is no way that I would have known that. So clearly I'm going to flag up in the video that that I read Nathan's article and that's where I got this idea from and Nathan got a little picture of himself in that video <laughs>
0: which gave us a lot of joy in our in our friendship group <laughs>
1: right exactly
0: <laughs> it's become very memeified.
1: and i would hope so too uh, and of course we we do retain the copyright to
0: that <laughs> so you know we'll send you the royalties along
1: yeah you should i think i think in those instances like it as far as i'm concerned as somebody who a has come out of a, an academic background where where referencing and sourcing is obviously you know kind of just a matter of course or should be and also knowing what it's like either directly or or hearing it from friends what it's like to have work ripped off then you know i i feel like it's it's not just the morally right thing to do it's it's the only decent way to to behave now when you're writing about tactics for example it's easier because you know the people that that write about tactics for us, whether it's me or, or others, we just watch games. And yes, there is a deep kind of background contextual hinterland to that, which is watching lots of other games and probably reading people like Jonathan Wilson or Pep Confidential or whatever it is. But that's not directly referencing what we're doing or being directly referenced in what we're doing. You know, it's a kind of, it's a hinterland. It's nothing more than that. So in that regard, I think it's it's fine. I think with with tactical writing and historical writing more generally, yes, there are lots of people who do it. So then it becomes a question of are we taking the bulk of an article from somewhere else? Are we, you know, it's it's these are things that we don't do because we've got a firm editorial process. But it's also particularly with the historical pieces, I think it's quite an easy trap even unwittingly to fall into because there are limited sources of of research and if you're not you know an author with a book deal who can afford to go and sit in the british library for hours and hours at a time and pour through original documentation and be absolutely solid that your research is original then yeah you are going to be using certain sources that overlap or sources that have a kind of common background i think what's really interesting is this question that came up in a in a discussion that we had off the back of the, the James Knowlton piece on, and I think the James Knowlton piece was, was excellent. And I agree with it. A lot of what he was talking about was kind of the more widespread ripping off of whole articles, lifting quotations from interviews and using them without reference and stealing videos or memes and reposting them as, as your own, if you're a big account. And obviously none of that really applies to what we do, but that conversation around referencing was almost to do with the lightness of the article, and 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 you know one of the suggestions that was put forward was if you chuck in a load of references, then it becomes quite bogged down and it's quite hard to read. I don't personally agree with that, and yes, you can use hyperlinking if it's an editorial. You can't hyperlink out of a video with with any great ease, but I, you know, I, I think it's one of those things. Ultimately, a writer is going to know in their heart of hearts what they've done, and I'm comfortable that the people that we work with at tifo are professional and do their work in an appropriate way and we have oversight you know seb's work on the on the website is is second to none joe does that stuff on the video side of things and obviously a you know a good amount of the stuff that we publish on video is completely original anyway because it's james montague's work or it's kieran's work on finances so you know we're we're kind of covered In that regard, I think in terms of the other point, the sort of intellectual property point, it's it's much, much trickier there, to be honest. And yes, if you're a company that has a particularly distinct visual identity in terms of how that, you know, how we manifest ourselves as a brand, then there are opportunities for people to be inspired by that, to borrow from it. And in some instances, potentially to more or less copy it. There's not much that we can really do about that. You know, if somebody uploads a whole video of ours on YouTube on a different channel, yeah, we can get them to take it down and that's fine. But I think one of the things that's really great is that, and and this is the way I would look at it, is that the the visual ID that we have established, particularly with um, Philippe Fenner's illustrations, is so strong that when people see it, they think it's us. And I would much rather have that than be necessarily getting into kind of scraps about this and that and saying, yeah, you know, I, I think, I think it can get very frustrating if you if you see other people's hard work borrowed in that way. At the same time, it's partly because what we're doing is inspiring people to to try and produce similar kinds of work. Uh, And that's, I I think I I would now prefer to look at that as being a a testament to the quality of what we're doing rather than anything else.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the, the wider football media from here then. I've written the question, do you see yourself as a cutting edge outlet? I think everyone would obviously answer yes to that kind of thing. But to what extent would you say that you seek to anticipate trends or respond to them? We've already talked about how you don't feel the need to necessarily coddle an audience how much would you say that you worry about trends as, as a company?
1: I think it's a good question in terms of, I think, I think the importance of trends can be overstated. I think, yes, there's been a movement, you know, obviously the football media landscape for a long, long time was newspapers, newspapers by and large do match reports. They do opinion, some of which is really good and some of which is utterly terrible um (laughs) and they do interviews and so for a long time that that was the sort of trend it was you know here's a here's an explanation of what you missed here's why some of that stuff might be important and here's a sit down with one of the guys that does it and i don't think that there's an inherently anything bad about any of those forms of of content and I think interviews can sometimes be really fascinating like I say some of the comment pieces some of the longer form journalism that you get now and we all know you know kind of the the good names in in that world so there's no point in repeating them but that's still extremely worthwhile I think what's increasingly happened as far as I'm concerned and, and I suppose I'd, I'd caveat all of this by saying I don't pretend to Understand what is happening a lot of the time i I can look at what people respond to and draw inference from that but it's it's more like I say about about making stuff that we think is interesting and worthwhile and and seeing where that goes so I think nowadays people are are interested in having a context to what they watch so the, the the primary football experience is still watching a match. And that is hopefully something that will continue to be the case. Fans now seem, quite a lot of them, to be very interested in what goes on around that as well. In a way that is not simply an interview with the people that are doing it or somebody's opinion on that, but also how the game is played the historical context to things, the financial context to things, ownership, that kind of stuff. And so I guess it's kind of the the trend in so far as it is a trend is that because people are increasingly able to consume content wherever they are, and particularly in kind of bite-sized chunks, there's an appetite to have the gaps around a match filled in. And so I guess in a way that that's sort of what we're looking at doing, you know, so if you, you might be an AC Milan fan and you like watching AC Milan games, but you're also quite curious about a guy that they maybe will be signing in the summer or what the new ownership structure is or those kinds of things. And that's what we're doing now. I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily an anticipation of a trend. I think it's something that, we found a way of delivering that information in a way that nobody else does. But I think people have been delivering that information in various forms for as long as I've been consuming football media. It's just that we kind of looked at it and went, well, if we break it down in a certain way and if we explain it in a certain way and we use visuals and and, and we construct these kind of storyboards that put it across it's easier to grasp what's happening and and it's clear and it's engaging and it's something that people can get to grips with in a short period of time and that's kind of the trend i suppose more than anything else so it's it's not the it's not the type of content it's the delivery mechanism i think that would put us i suppose more towards the cutting edge if, if that's the expression you want to use <laughs>
0: I'd like to talk about formats as well because uh, one of the things that I was doing in my erstwhile position as a football editor was I just spent a lot of time trawling the a lot of the US sites, in fact, because I feel in many and I, we've had this conversation before, but I, I still feel in many respects that the US market is a long way ahead of of the UK market in terms of innovations at the level of format. And I, I think obviously the the success of Tifo is, has has come from the fact that they came across this format that worked for them relatively early on in the time that you were there with Joe making that decision to start producing these whiteboard videos. This week, TIFO announced to its writers that it's shifting its, its written content. You have written content on the website to a video format predominantly. Talking about formats and format changes and and, and trends, there was an industry-wide pivot to video where everyone thought that video was going to save the world and then in the last year or so there's been actually a pivot away from video so i would I would like to ask you whether or not you think you've cracked the video format and whether or not you have a look over your shoulder every once in a while at the markets around you to see whether or not you can push that format into a new area as well so to what extent do you feel as though you've you've done what you've done well and to what extent do you feel as though you have to go further
1: so the pivot to video thing, I think, is interesting. Uh, I think a lot of that pivot to video, as people talked about it when you know ESPN was doing it and and so on, was was almost creating kind of mini news segments about stuff. It was rather than reading about this transfer, you'd you, you'd like to see a kind of montage of the player doing some stuff and some strap lines, and it was very much driven, I think, by the consumability of things on social. When Twitter expanded the the length of of embedded videos that could be displayed on the site, that kind of stuff. So, you know, you've got you've got a um, sixty seconds worth of Alexis Sanchez doing some cool shit to say he's moving to Man United. That's not our pivot to video. A, we're not pivoting to video in the same way because we produce different stuff. But also, what we've recognised is that actually. The the type of things that we talk about, whether we talk about them in a written form or in a video form, or even in a podcast form, when we were doing that, which I'm sure you'll come back to later, um, the the content's essentially the same. So all we're doing in terms of of the way that we're looking at it is now that the the commissioning process puts the creation of of scripts for videos front and center. It it's not about saying written content is is dead or has no utility or anything like that. It's about saying, if we are creating interesting and original written material, we're going to be doing that first and foremost with a view to making it into a 5, 6, 10, 20 minute video. A lot of that stuff will, will be repurposed and there will still be you know, Seb will still be writing on on the site anyway, so there's you know there, there is original stuff going on there. I think we've just looked at it and thought, in terms of of maximizing our output without compromising on our editorial standards. And I use the word editorial there, not in the sense of the the written word, but in the sense of the way we're trying to talk about stuff and the process that we go through to do that then there's no reason for us not to look at these as being two contiguous strands that ultimately end up in the same place rather than saying, right, on the one side we've got a website and it puts out really great original stuff and that's cool and on the other side we've got a video site and that puts out really great and original stuff and that's cool but they're basically not the same thing. All we've looked at is thought, well, why aren't they the same thing? They they should be the same thing. There's there's a you know there are minor stylistic tweaks that make something more appropriate for a YouTube script than than for a piece of written material commissioned for a website. But that's really basically it. It's saying that that you know we'll lead on that and and the stuff that works across in a way that can be can be read long form. will continue to put that up regularly. And like I say, you know the the Seb Seb will continue to work on the site doing really brilliant original journalism on there um which will include his book reviews and and stuff like that so it's not it's by no means a rejection of that it's just a kind of recalibration of the commissioning process that that could sound like we're turning our backs on something but really isn't
0: I think that's very clear. Then, from what you said, that what you're doing is almost like streamlining the the editorial process, just so that it it makes sense and, uh, and allows you to sort of focus on the on the areas that you're really pulling all your traffic in on. So, you, I, I've asked this in the question the running order is by the same argument. Would you say the written format is passing away? You obviously don't think that the written format is passing away, but it's clearly being. I guess it's, it's, it's probably on the brink of, uh, or its lowest ebb, I think, at least in, so far as I've been in the, in the football media sphere. Thoughts on that? Thoughts on, you've also mentioned podcasts as well. And as you said, you've pulled back on the, the, the amount of podcasts that you've been producing. And I'm guessing the thinking behind that is the same as, as the thinking behind is the, this sort of realignment of the written stuff as well.
1: The thinking on podcasts was, was simply that we were bashing them out over the World Cup all the time because we were, we're all in the same place all the time while we were doing it. And it, and it seemed sensible to be responsive to what was happening and what we really, or all we've, all we've done is kind of pause the delivery of that and it'll restart again soon. And again, Seb's been doing a couple, uh, the, he's done an interview with Michael Calvin. He's got a couple of other interviews coming out soon. So, so there is, there is an audio arm to what, what we're doing currently. I suppose, I mean, podcasting is, it's an interesting one in and of itself. I know it's something that's that's of particular interest to you, the sense that if we're doing something, and I'm, I say we, I'm talking about TIFO here, this is the way I think about it. If we're doing something, it has to be something that is in and of itself worth doing. And by virtue of that, isn't necessarily being done bigger or better by somebody else that to me is the single biggest problem with podcasts at the moment is that it's happening a lot and and i think for podcasting now read blogging 5 years ago where every you know anybody who's got a, a a a reasonable amount of technical wherewithal and it is you know it's hard to put podcasts together i do know that it's a lot harder than it is to figure out how to use a wordpress cms but the ultimate idea of a podcast in terms of you know a person or a group of people sat around chatting about stuff and turning that into a workable publishable format is is pretty low budget and that means that the people who do have deeper pockets for it can then just make those people more interesting or they can amplify what they're doing so that it you know goes out to a wider audience or or whatever it is and i'm not saying that the content is necessarily any better or any more more interesting there are subjects where i would want to listen to an expert on something rather than not an expert and i think that that's you know there's a general move there when when podcasts started out it did have that kind of garage feel to it and part of the fun was that it was quote-unquote ordinary people giving their thoughts. And now, you know. like anything in the media, it's moved away from that. It's become more professional. And there is an exposure to people who really know what they're talking about in a subject which has transcended the amateur enthusiast. And I think there's a loss in that, but I can also understand why it's happened. I think as far as the written word goes, the, the issue is not with the quality of the written word, because there are still really excellent journalists out there. And I think as well, there are people that are doing interesting things. Uh, I mean, the FT has done some superb data journalism, which I guess you'd call written word kind of. StatsBomb integrates data visualization with very good written work. And, you know, there are other examples like J.J. Bull's tactical stuff in The Telegraph. It, you know they're they're taking the written word as a basis and they're they're doing something a bit more thoughtful with it then there are also people who are just good at writing or have a nose for really interesting stories and those people are out there and they're doing good stuff and we know who they are too i think the issue is that there's also much 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 more shit to wade through than there ever previously was and to return Very briefly to to subscription, that should be part of the benefit of a subscription model is a de facto gatekeeper that says, because you're paying for this, everything behind this paywall is worth reading. That doesn't mean everything behind the paywall is something I would agree with or be interested in, but there is a stringent process in place to ensure that it's well written, that it's not riddled with errors, etc., etc. And the kind of middle ground of stuff of of sites that are looking to as you say with with an ad, ad revenue basis are looking to regularly churn out 15 20 30 pieces of of written work a day with minimal oversight in some instances of a particularly ephemeral nature if you're being bombarded with that all of the time or you go to the independence website for example which although it does feature some genuinely interesting stuff just looks so ugly and awful and full of adverts that i can't read it you know this this is kind of the problem with the written word is that in order for it to be worth engaging with it has to have a lot of that stuff stripped out but then if it has that stuff stripped out or if it has a good editorial process or whatever it is then that costs and there's a balance to be achieved there. And and the mechanics that surround the written word seem to be struggling with that to a a greater degree than maybe some of the rest of us are.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's really interesting that you say that subscription models do have that gatekeeper function, but also I guess uh, there's a monetary element to it as well, insofar as, you know, when everything is free, then anyone can be a writer and I think that's why you get that agglomeration of shit as you called it because there's nothing to stop someone reading a Jonathan Liu article versus reading someone's wordpress there's no difference in those two things because you don't need to invest in them in the same way
1: no I think I think that's very true I mean I I would say that the tangential benefit to that is that that for every you know 100 desperately poor self-penned articles on sports skier or whatever they're there are a couple of of really good undiscovered writers out there who have less of a barrier to entry because of the mechanics of it. The the flip side to that is that they're also equally drowned out and also ripe for being exploited by people who don't want to pay for content, which is a, a whole other issue. So, yeah, I mean, I think when there were fewer bloggers and when there were The barriers to entry were were kind of they were still low but they were almost self-policed in terms of because twitter particularly was smaller and i think more considered and less shouty about stuff then there were certain accounts that you could follow and i mean i think particularly say someone like the football pink and you know 80 percent of People that were writing for the Football Pink were people that I'd never heard of and and almost certainly weren't professional journalists. But I'd be very confident if Mark had taken the time to tweet out a link that it was going to be worth my time reading it. And now there's there's so much noise and there are so many people doing it and there are so many sites churning this stuff out that actually it becomes far less easy to have that self-policing element as well. I, I, policing, I know, is possibly a contentious <laughs> term, but I think you know what I mean by it. So it does create a world in which there's a lot of shouting and not necessarily a lot of quality. And that, you know, that can apply to anything. That can apply to podcasts. It can apply to video. I think because videos are harder to do, you tend to get it less. Just because if you're not that great, you're not probably going to make the effort.
0: Yeah, I've just written a piece actually looking at, I think that for me the influence. That the fact that we we lost what was previously a traditional subscription model in, in, in newspapers, we moved into an ad revenue model which which basically removed that sort of demographic that you get in a, in a subscription model where you are aiming for a specific audience rather than everyone. Ad revenue reverses that so you're suddenly aiming for everyone and I think social media has very much become the product of that where everyone feels the need to have an opinion on everything. Everyone feels the need to be able to read everything so previously you would have, I don't know, been a Guardian reader and you would have read all the articles in The Guardian, you wouldn't really have come across articles in The Telegraph and you wouldn't have read them because you'd made that decision to be a Guardian reader. And I think now we, we sort of have got into the habit of just reading everything, even if we don't agree with it, or at least keeping an eye on everything. And I think that's made us irresponsible consumers. And I think moving back to a subscription model starts. I guess publishers thinking a little bit more again about their audience. There's a little bit more responsibility there for, for their, for their audience. And so you'll start getting this catering towards a smaller section of the market. Again, I think that will probably be a good thing, but I guess we'll wait to see if that happens. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I think that may well be. So I also think I I, I agree with you that social encourages an opinion on everything and, and, by and large, not necessarily for the best reasons. And I think some people read things in order to be outraged or in order to, to pick a fight. And and obviously, you know, football is one of those subjects where people do have strongly held views, many of which fly in the face of common sense or reason. and And that's absolutely fine. And that's, you know, that's their entitlement, as long as it doesn't overstep the bounds and become discriminatory or or offensive but i think in that sense you know there are there are certain writers out there who kind of revel in that argumentative aspect and in biting back and being angrily defensive about some of the stuff they've they've put out and it it kind of i think it lowers the tone of discussions generally i i kind of find myself increasingly apathetic towards actually discussing anything that that we do or not not that I wouldn't want to respond to criticism because I think if if criticism is well-intentioned or or kind of framed in a you know I'm not quite sure what you meant by that because I think if you look at it then you can see this you know sometimes that criticism is really worthwhile but but a lot of below-the-line criticism or criticism on social is, is just there to try and get a rise out of you. And, and being part of that, it's not even a conversation, it's a shouting match, is, is exhausting, counterproductive, and a waste of time. But some people seem to really enjoy it, so good <laughs> yeah, luck I've, to them.
0: I've definitely started implementing a sort of would-I-speak-to-this-person-in-the-pub filter for when I engage with people on on social media
1: it's you know that i I remember reading forever ago and i'm sure i've said it before you know does this need to be said does it need to be said by me and does it need to be said by me right now yeah and the number of times i've started you know because look i there, there are there are authors out there who and this i think is another thing that's occurred on social media is that just as everybody is quite keen to criticize i think I think some people are very keen to praise as well, and and there are you know there are writers that I read sometimes where it it, it's kind of like a congratulatory circle jerk around this particular author's article on such and such a thing, and and I don't mean one author by that. I mean there's there's a number to whom this applies, and I read it and I think yeah it's all right, but what what's the point of me saying actually I don't think it's as good as. a lot of you think it is or it's not that great and you're all saying it is because you want to get a pat on the back from this particular person or, or whatever it's, it's just it it doesn't matter what i think and and so why does it matter what i say uh, and i think everybody you know with with social media and and so on it, it i think it gives it gives people and people do have the right to comment on everything i think the difference is that they don't have the right to expect a response and they don't have a right to necessarily feel whether that response is direct or implicit that I, that I have any interest in what their opinion is. And I think that's the difference when we talked earlier in this about engagement with audience. That's that's why what I love to see and what at Tifa we're really lucky to have is rather than the comments that say this is the best video I've ever seen or this video is absolute shit you don't understand football, <laughs> I want to see a comment that says have you seen how this team are playing this season because it's really interesting? That's what matters to me. It's the people who take the time out and the effort to share what they are interested in with us in the hope that we may be able to look at that or be interested in it as well. The rest of it is just white noise, really.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's the beauty of a subscription model in that it inculcates this notion of Not only community, but sort of a shared responsibility. If you're paying your hard-earned money to, to read a particular site, then you are engaged in that site. You've mentioned that already with the athletic and I, I subscribe to the athletic as well. And I, like you say, I care about that website more than I care about the Guardian website that I don't subscribe to. I, I guess when you can, when you can engage the, the audience in that way in a subscription model, the audience won't feel the need to just be like, this is rubbish. They'll all say, "Oh, this is interesting. Why don't you do this, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So,
1: yeah, I th- th- think that's true, and I think the Guardian's an interesting point because, of course, their their model is sort of, you know, if you like us or want us to keep doing this stuff,
0: begging bowl, I think it's called in the industry, <laughs> but it, it's worked. <laughs> well, yeah, and and I I do
1: have some sympathy with that. I I think it's really around it's around the messaging and the way that that message is given. I you know I think if we honestly said to to our viewership on youtube for example you know we're gonna stop doing what we're doing because we can't afford to do it unless you help us out some of those people would help us out but the way i would prefer to do it is is to be you know sufficiently commercially responsible and and also work with people that are are prepared to pay us so that we don't have to go directly to a consumer with a, a begging bowl that in time, we can maybe go to a consumer and say, you know, hey, we've got this stuff. Which you can have for free, and it's really cool. But also, there's this other stuff that we're doing that's even more interesting, or as interesting, but in a different way. And maybe that's something that you consider paying for. I think it's a very different way of looking
0: at it. Yeah, I'll let you go after this question, uh, just about the future of the football media. Where do you see it heading, and how do you see Tifo fitting within that future? I guess we've we've covered all of this, but I'll give you a I'll give you a couple of minutes to just sort of spread out your (laughs) five year plan or whatever.
1: (laughs) Oh yes, there's nothing as complex and detailed as a five-year plan (laughs) i suppose i'd answer that by saying that i i think i think it's a really interesting time in the sense that you know we're seeing more money going into video content particularly with youtube and of course youtube is a really interesting way of looking at it because you're you're the creator you're the publisher and in part because of the way stuff can be used on the channel you're also the frame within that publishing process so you know like the 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 production company but but itv themselves as well in terms of the commercial aspect um i think the increase of streaming presents interesting opportunities um you know with with matches being streamed for example i can see that you know there's there's room for the production of, of video content to To work in concert with that um, or in support of it I think probably the, the the key point is that the nature of the content doesn't necessarily need to change in terms of people want stuff that's engaging and interesting and whether they're reading it in a book which is in all honesty probably my preferred method or they're watching it in a five minute video or a half an hour video or a series of documentaries on netflix or whatever it is what really always will out is quality and the way that we've approached quality is to say it needs to look really good it needs to sound really good and the thing that we're talking about needs to be interesting and written about in an interesting way and i think as long as we continue to to keep that as the absolute core of what we do then how that gets put out or where that gets put out or with whom it gets put out is is sort of it's not moot but that that would be responsive the the key point is to just ensure that that the videos continue to be really great and that the written material on the website and the podcast that they continue to be really great as well because that's what people come for and it's a commonplace in in creative industries to say you know if you make really good work then the money will come and i think that's something that we kind of cleave to in terms of yes obviously there are efforts to to monetize what we're doing and that's part of my job is to to deal with that side of things but as long as we continue to make videos that we're proud of and that we would want to sit down and watch ourselves or share with people and and you know whether it's the stuff that we do with the Bundesliga or it's the stuff we do on our own site or or whatever then there will be an interest in that and i think what's been great is that that we've sort of we've been at i don't want to say we've been at the beginning of doing this because that sounds maybe a bit portentous but we've we've managed to get in amongst a, a group of people that are producing the right sort of content at the right kind of time for the right kind of reasons and we all benefit from the commercial opportunities that come from that and hopefully in turn our audience then benefit from from being delivered a kind of content that they find really interesting, which is what matters most.
0: Alex, how can we follow you? How can we follow Tifo? What sort of channels should we look for them on?
1: Well, we've got we've got the usual Twitter, which is TifoFootball underscore, TifoFootball on YouTube and TifoFootball.com. And I'm on Twitter at AFH Stewart with an (laughs) EW.
0: Yes. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been really great to chat to you. No, no, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. You can tune in next week to hear Mark Godfrey talk about the place of fanzines in the football media, but until then, have a good week. Goodbye.